At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This Christmas season, we invite you to look deeper into the incredible covenants God made with His people in Scripture. Tune into our current series, Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavish, to discover God's unwavering promises to meet the ultimate longings of our heart and ultimately renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Today, we're continuing in our Christmas sermon series, and we've titled it Gift Wrapped, From Longing to Lavished. And the idea here is to work our way through the Old Testament leading up to the coming of Christ or his advent. Advent is just the Latin word for arrival or coming. And so this Advent season, we're going to work through the Old Testament story and how it leads up to the advent or the coming of Christ. And there are several ways that you can outline the Old Testament, but the way we've chosen to do so is around the different covenants God makes leading up to what the Bible calls the new covenant in Christ. So throughout the Old Testament, God makes these different covenants leading up to the new covenant in Christ. And the first Old Testament covenant really happens at creation. After God creates the world and fills it with plant life and animal life, after all of that, the pinnacle of his creation is man. We are said to be created in God's image. And central for what it means for us to be God's image bearers is that we as humans have a distinct ability to relate with God. We can relate with God in a way that's distinct from all the rest of creation. Indeed, every human being is in a covenantal relationship with God. Whether we believe in God or not, whether we believe in the true God or not, every human is in covenant relationship with God as one of his image bearers. Tragically, however, not long into the story after God creates us, Genesis chapter 3, we fail as God's image bearers. We don't relate with him in trusting submission and loving obedience as his children. Instead, our first parents and all of us since attempted to be like God, to be ruler of ourselves. In short, we did what the Bible calls sin. And from there, in Genesis chapter 3, things continue to spiral out of control and devolve for the human race to the point that, as we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 6, God is grieved in his heart and even has an amount of regret that he ever created the human race in the first place. And so God hands down justice. He judges the whole world with a flood that cleanses the world of sin, except for one man, Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah. And this is the first place in the Bible that we see that language, covenant. It's the Hebrew word barit. And this covenant with Noah really reaffirms and reestablishes the covenant at creation. God, in essence, says, I'm still committed to creation. Noah, you and your descendants are still my image bearers. And like I did for Adam and Eve, I'm calling you to be fruitful and multiply. Tragically, however, Noah, this sort of second Adam, in the same chapter wherein God covenants with Noah and his descendants, Noah gets drunk 
and passes out naked around his house. So notice the parallel here. Adam ate the fruit of the tree and in his shame realized he was naked. Noah drank the fruit of the vine and in his shame passed out naked before his children. So these parallel tragedies in the stories of Adam and Noah indicate that nothing has changed from Adam to Noah. Even though God judges wickedness in a global way through the flood, Noah is still just as broken as our first father. He carried that brokenness with him on the ark. And things spiral out of control once again. In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel incident happens wherein the people attempt to once again be like God and reach the heavens under their own power. And the Lord judges the people, this time not by destroying them, but by scattering them through their inability to communicate. And this really is the origin of different people groups, different races, different ethnicities who speak different languages. And then... In Genesis chapter 12, God says, I'm going to covenant myself with one of these people groups. Indeed, I'm going to make one of these people groups and covenant myself with them. And the new Adam, the head man for this covenant people is named Abram, eventually renamed Abraham. And so we refer to this covenant in Genesis chapter 12 as the Abrahamic covenant. So we have the covenant at creation with Adam. We have the reestablishing and reaffirmation of that covenant with Noah after the flood. And now we have the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to unite himself, covenant himself with a particular man and his descendants, Abraham. So what is the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. What's this covenant relationship about and what's it for? Well, let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. There God speaks promises to Abraham. These promises and God's covenant commitment to fulfill these promises are the nature of the Abrahamic covenant. So let's hear it. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. Moses writes, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed." So God calls Abram to leave his home country, to leave his father's house, and God promises three things. Three times here, God says, I will. He says, I will give you land. I will give you many descendants. The way he puts it is by saying, I will make you a great nation. And finally, he says, I will bless you. And once again, this is in many ways another new start. Just like God gave Adam a special place to live, the Garden of Eden, God is promising Abraham land, a place for his descendants to live and thrive as God's covenant people. And just like, Adam, uh, just like God intended Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, in other words, have a bunch of babies, so now God is promising that Abraham will have many descendants, and did, indeed he'll be a great nation. And just like Adam and Eve 
uh, were intended to live under God's loving leadership, now God is promising that Abraham will be blessed. Abraham's people will be blessed. They'll flourish and thrive under God's care. And this really sets up, these three verses really set up the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham's descendants, the nation, the people known as Israel. So once again, we're going to unfold this story or unwrap this story over the course of these weeks leading up to Christmas as we celebrate the fulfillment of these covenants in Christ. But again, today we're focusing on the covenant promises given to Abraham and the story of faith and struggle as Abraham seeks to follow God in light of these three promises given to him, the promise for land, the promise for descendants, and the promise to experience God's blessing. Can Abraham count on God to fulfill these promises? When will these promises be fulfilled? They're spoken in Genesis chapter 12, but by Genesis chapter 15, it still hasn't happened. Abraham has no children. He's married to Sarah, but she's barren. He's supposed to be this great nation. Time has gone by, and there's still a nation of just two, husband and wife, no kids, no grandkids, no multiplication, no fulfillment of promises. So when will God come through? How can we be sure he's dependable, reliable? Well, let's read Genesis chapter 15, all 20 verses, all 21 verses, and let's see how Abraham works through this and how God responds. And remember, Abraham is not renamed Abraham by this point in the story. He's still Abram. So Genesis chapter 15, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, Lord, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then the Lord said to Abram, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. And he said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? The Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought the Lord all these, cut them in half, and laid each over against the other. But Abram did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here, your descendants, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's something about powerful surges of emotion that allow you to remember the events that caused those feelings to occur in you. So for example, something really embarrassing happens and the emotional impact of that embarrassment keeps you from forgetting what happened forever. Or perhaps a dreadfully sad thing happens and the bitter taste of that grief keeps you from ever forgetting that tragedy in your life. Well, the same thing can happen with experiences of fear. I still remember this like it was yesterday. I was probably 11, 12 years old. My mom dropped me off at an art class at this studio, and she promised, she gave me her word, I will come back for you in an hour to pick you up. Well, the class finishes. One classmate gets picked up. Another gets picked up. Eventually, they all get picked up, and I'm the last one alone, waiting, and just this little bit of anxiety sparks in my heart, and I start to have these thoughts. Where is she? Why hasn't she come yet? But as more and more time goes on, my anxiety develops into fear, into panic, and remember, this was before the day of cell phones. This was 25 plus years ago, which was well before everybody had instant access to everyone on the planet through a cell phone. So I did go back into the art studio and use the landline on the uh, landline to call my house, but nobody answered. Again and again, nobody answered. And that lack of certainty, that lack of knowing where is she, when she's going to come, It made me feel fear. Now understand, in one sense, I had all the confidence in the world my mom was going to get me. She was going to come eventually. In one sense, I had no doubt. On the other hand, where is she? I know she's going to come, but when's she going to come? So it's almost like my faith in my mom is what caused me this fear because I knew she was trustworthy. I believed she would come through, but when will she come through? And how can I remain sure and confident 
even as I wait. Now, just so you know, distressed as I was, my mom did come. Don't want her reputation to get spoiled. She's supposed to be here in a few weeks. She had just gotten crazy, ridiculously sidetracked on her way to get me. She's an awesome mom. It was just one of those things that happens in life. But I tell you what, I have never forgotten that because of the fear was so palpable. And I share this story because it's analogous, I think, to what Abraham is going through here. He has received these promises. He knows God is trustworthy, and yet he waits in distress with fear. And the first lesson we learn as this narrative unfolds, the first thing we learn from Abraham's experience is rest in God's reassurances. Rest in God's reassurances. In the middle of his struggle, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And he says this in verse one, do not fear. That's how we know Abraham was feeling fear because God says, do not fear. So how wonderful. God says to Abram with fatherly reassurance, don't be afraid. You know, one of the things that parents are for our children is like a fear barometer because there are things kids should be afraid of that they're not afraid of. Like right now for my two boys, it's throwing snowballs at our neighbor's dog. They should be afraid of that dog. And I've warned them, but they're not. But then there's other things our kids are afraid of that they shouldn't be, like jumping off the diving board or going to their first day of school. And a parent looks at those child in that moment and says, hey, don't be afraid. You've got this. Move forward in strength. That's what's happening here. God is reassuring him. He's calling him out of his fear and into strength. And God supports this call with the rest of what he says there in verse one. Fear not, I am your shield. So think about the nature of a shield. It's a defensive weapon. A shield protects you from things you should be afraid of, like a sword coming at your throat or an arrow flying at your chest. Both very frightful things that a shield can help you with. But in order for a shield to be effective, you've got to keep moving forward. If you turn around, you expose your backside, and a shield was not made to protect your backside. No, shields were made for you to get behind them and move forward. Fear causes us to flee, like when a scary dog's running at you and you want to run away. But if you've got a shield, you can face the thing that's frightening. God says, that's who I am for you, a shield. Take refuge in me and let's move forward. And he continues there in verse one. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So this is specifically referencing the rewards promised in chapter 12, verses one through three. Land to live in. Many children as his descendants. God reassures him it's going to happen. My promises will come true for you. And so church, we should ask ourselves, what fearful thing is facing you in life? What circumstance is causing the anxiety to spark in your heart? Causing the thoughts to occur. When will God show up? 
Where is he? How long? How will he come through? It could be related to any number of things, relationships, money, children, life direction, whatever it is, know that the Lord does not judge your fear. He does not condemn you for your questioning. Instead, as he does for Abraham, he comes to you with fatherly strength and speaks a word of affirmation and encouragement. Do not fear. I am your shield. I will provide. Move forward in my calling on your life. Brothers and sisters, rest in God's reassurances. Next, as the scene unfolds, we, along with Abraham, are called to trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. As we said initially, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave his home country, and then God shares these promises with Abraham, and off Abraham goes. We don't get any sense that Abraham hesitated with that initial call to leave his homeland and go to this new place that God was directing him to. However, look where Abraham's at here in verse two. God reassures Abraham, do not fear, verse two, but Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household servants will be my heir. So Abraham here questions God. Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless. In other words, when are you going to give me a child like you promised? Aren't I supposed to be a great nation? Doesn't your plans and purposes depend upon me being fruitful and multiplying? So he questions God. And then he complains to God. He says, the heir of my house is gonna be one of my house servants, Eliezer of Damascus. Now again, I don't think Abraham is asking this question and expressing this complaint because he's bitter and fundamentally is distrusting of God. Rather, he's simply being honest about the situation and transparent about how he's feeling and he's looking for resolution from the Lord. How does the Lord respond to Abraham's questioning and complaint? Verses four and five. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abram outside, said, look to the heavens, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, just like those stars, so shall your offspring be. So God's word comes to Abraham once more and God is crystal clear. A house servant shall not be your heir. He says, your very own son shall be your heir. And the translators have really softened this. What God literally says is, your heir shall come forth from your loins. So he's being very to the point. You're not going to appropriate an heir from secondary means. You and Sarah, that was Abraham's wife, you and Sarah are going to physically conceive and biologically give birth to an heir. You're not going to sidestep and come up with a contingency plan. And in order to reinforce this and impress this promise upon Abraham's mind and heart, he directs Abraham outside, tells him to look at the stars and kind of sarcastically, mockingly says, look at the stars and count them if you're able. The implication, of course, being that he's not able. So God, in essence, says, Abraham, your descendants, which remember at this point are at a grand total of zero, 
they are eventually going to be as countless as the stars. God is saying, my power is not limited by the physical vitality of an old man. My power is not limited by a barren womb. I am he who created the stars out of nothing by the mere command of my voice. They sprung into existence. You don't think I can't open Sarah's womb? Count the stars if you're able. How does Abraham respond? Verse six, Moses writes, Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted his faith as righteousness. So this word for believed here, it carries the idea of standing firm on top of something and allowing it to support you, trusting it to support you. Well, Abraham here gives that kind of trust to God. More specifically, he trusts the promises of God, the word of God. And remarkably, the narrator, Moses, he comments, when Abraham believed the Lord, the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And this word counted is a counting term. That's why some translators have it, the Lord credited to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, fundamentally, the Lord considered Abraham righteous not because of his righteous behavior and actions. No, at the core, the Lord counts Abraham righteous because of his faith, because of his trust in the promises of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God does not care about Abraham's behavior. Like, oh, I can do whatever I want because I believe in God. Noah actually learned from Abraham's own life that sincere faith produces righteous actions. But the foundation of a righteous life is humble faith. And when Abraham trusts the promises of God, boom, that's all it took. God counts Abraham righteous. God credits his faith to him as righteousness. So think of it. Abraham is the first patriarch. He is the head of the heads of Israel. He is the first Jew. And so God is putting this lesson into the scriptural account about Abraham's life because he wants every one of Abraham's descendants to know, and he wants every one of us to know that crucial in our life with God is faith. Unlike basically every other religion, our relationship with God is not so much about what we can do for him, it's about what he can do for us and us believing he will do it. So church, I don't know what it is for you, but God is calling us to move forward into the unknown. For Abraham and Sarah, it was the unknown of how in the heck are we gonna have a baby when we're getting so old? For others, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get through this relationship? How am I going to minister the gospel in this situation? Well, if you've been a student of Scripture for any amount of time, then you know that there is a promise for basically every problem we face. And if Abraham, the father of Israel, this crucial character in redemptive history, if he had to walk by faith, so too are we called. Rest in God's reassurances. Trust in God's promises. And finally, here we learn, anticipate God's provision. Anticipate God's provision. So let's look at this final scene of the chapter. Just like the first scene, God comes to Abraham and assures him of his promises. In the first scene, God said, do not fear. 
I'm your shield, your reward will be great, I'll fulfill my promise to give your children. And then in this scene, God comes to Abraham and says there in verse seven, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land for you to possess. So the scene starts out just like the last one did with God reassuring Abraham of his promises. This time it has to do with the promise to give Abraham land. And also, just like the last scene, Abraham then questions God related to this promise. In the first scene, he said, what will you give me, Lord, for I continue childless? And in this scene, here's what he asks, verse eight. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? How am I to know you'll give me this land, is what Abraham asks. Because as he looks at the situation, there's not a whole lot of evidence that this is going to happen. So Abraham is looking for an amount of certainty, reassurance. And what God does next is walk Abraham through a covenant ceremony. In other words, God says, I'm not, I'm not only going to tell you I'm committed to you, I'm going to show you my commitment to you through this dramatic visual covenant ceremony. And we still do this kind of thing today, right? The most basic way we do this is a handshake. When you make a deal with someone, you don't just say, hey, I'm committed to the terms of this deal. No, you shake on it. And it's a way to further express, I'm committed to you and you're committed to me within the parameters of this contract or whatever. We also have marriage ceremonies within which the two partners in the deal exchange rings and share vows and the best part, publicly kiss, communicating to one another and communicating to everyone, hey, we're committed. We're in this covenant relationship. Well, God is doing the same thing with Abraham here. And the ceremony God leads Abraham through is quite bizarre, at least to our modern tastes, but apparently this was a common way to express covenant commitment between two people in the ancient world, whether it was a land treaty or a business deal or whatever. But here's how it goes. Several animals are brought to the scene. In this case, God tells Abraham to get a heifer, a sheep, a ram, and two birds. And then each animal is cut in two. I guess right in half, the animals are cut in two. And so God tells Abraham to do that. And the two halves of each animal are sort of dragged apart to create a little pathway. And then the two parties within the covenant would walk through the sacrificed animals. And the meaning behind this ritual seems to be that each member of the covenant is saying, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, then let it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. Let me be cursed as these animals are cursed if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. So it's pretty dramatic and certainly a very powerful sign of the covenant commitment between each party. But here's the thing. Right after all of this is set up for Abraham and God to walk through the sacrificed animals, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. And then, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, the Lord passes through the pieces of the animals. Now, it's not unusual for God to appear in the form of fire, 
within the relatively few instances that God manifests himself visually, those instances often include God showing up in the form of fire. It's not unusual. What is unusual is that both partners in the covenant don't walk through the sacrificed animals. Only God does. Because Abraham's conked out asleep. And here's the payoff of this. Here's why this is important. The fact that only God passes through the animals shows that the promise depends upon him and him alone. God is saying, I will take the full weight of responsibility for fulfilling this covenant, even to the point of taking the curses for you, Abraham, if you break the covenant. So do you understand that? In a way, God is saying, Abraham, you are exempt from being cursed if you break this covenant. And in fact, I will take the curse for you when and if you break the covenant. And guys, if you know the story of Abraham and you know the story of Abraham's descendants, Israel, they continually fail in upholding the terms of God's covenant with them through sin and idolatry and compromise of all sorts, they fail to uphold their end of the covenant. But here, at the very foundation of God's covenant making with Israel, he says, I will take upon myself the bloody consequences if and when you break my covenant. So church, think about the humility of this scene. God himself sloshing through these bloody, stinky, cursed carcasses. He's saying, I'll take this upon myself for you. And church, that is exactly what happened on the cross of Christ. God in the flesh was pinned to the cross, taking upon himself the consequences of our covenant-breaking behavior. The apostle Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter two, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, Jesus himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. The curse that our sin deserved was put on him and him alone. Genesis 15, this bloody covenant ritual points to the cross. And so this is a wonderfully appropriate day for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we do on each first Sunday of the month. This meal is a covenant ceremony whereby we remember that our salvation and our relationship with God is dependent entirely upon God, not what we can do for him, but what he's done for us. And what did he do? His body was broken. His blood was spilled. He took upon himself the curse that our sin deserved. So if that's you, if you're saying, yes, I am broken and I have broken my obligation to be faithful to God, I am in need of forgiveness and restoration and grace, and I'm turning from my life of sin, and I'm trusting in Jesus alone who took the curse I deserved. If that's you, friend, this meal is for you. 
Let's eat and drink to the glory of our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. But if that's not you, if you're still resistant to trusting in Jesus, then I encourage you to consider the sacrificial nature of our God. Will any other God lay down their life for you like this? Is any other God as committed to his people like this? And might his sacrificial love be the key to fulfilling the emptiness in your heart? Our Father in heaven, we gratefully, joyfully proclaim Jesus' death this morning. His death is the key that swings open the doors for us to enter into your family. God, we thank you for this new covenant relationship whereby you have sealed our status as your children, whereby we are reassured that we're forgiven. There's nothing that can be added to the work of Christ. It is finished. You love us. Thank you. And Father, we too, like Abraham, are pilgrims. We too, like Abraham, are sojourners in a foreign land, being called to move forward, oftentimes into the unknown. We too, like Abraham, are on a journey of faith. And so, God, I pray that you would reassure us with your word to us, with your Holy Spirit's work inside of us. Provide for your children, Lord. We trust your promises in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.